Hey, foam friends, it's Graham. Due to scheduling issues, there won't be a traditional episode this week, but don't worry, we'll be back next week with our take on the David Cronenberg film Rabid. Uh, you can be assured of that. This week, we have a mini discussion on Albert Pyung's, or Pyung's film Nemesis that we actually caught on the big screen at the Royal Cinema here in Toronto in 35mm. Um, but first, I want to talk about the great loss that the world of cinema had this week. I'll also note that the great actor Martin Lando has passed away. He portrayed another great actor, Bela Lugosi, in one of my favorite films, Ed Wood. So rest in peace, Martin Lando, Landau, and uh, our thoughts are with his family and friends. George A. Romero has passed away. He was my favorite filmmaker, so I'm going to talk a little bit about him. The first film of his that I ever saw was actually his first film, Night of the Living Dead. He uh, produced it, co-wrote it, uh, shot it, edited it, and directed it in 1968 when he was just 27 years old. He had a writing partner on the script, John Russo, who would go on to write a novel, Return of the Living Dead, which inspired the film of the same name. And he produced it with uh, Russell Streiner, who was also one of the actors in Night of the Living Dead. Uh, I really can't sum up how important George Romero was, not just to horror filmmaking, but filmmaking in general. Uh, His Night of the Living Dead could be considered the first hit independent feature film, back when they were just called regionals. Uh, It predated Easy Rider by, by about a year. And... Uh, it was self-financed as well. Uh, George Romero and ten of his film friends uh, formed uh, Image Ten Productions, and each kicked in ten thousand dollars. And then uh, they raised some more financing as well to complete the film. It's terrifying to this day. Uh, there's just no way around it. When I saw it when I was uh, fourteen years old, I actually lied about my age because it was a 18 rated VHS tape, uh, at least in the province of Nova Scotia. So I lied and said I was 17 turning 18, whereas I was actually 14 turning 15. Uh, The film traumatized me. The depictions of violence and cannibalism and child on parent murder shocked me horribly. What also shocked me more was the attitudes of the characters and those and how society quickly broke down in the face of such an inexplicable phenomenon. There was no way to describe it, but it definitely had a profound effect on me. I wanted to find out everything I could about it. This is where I first learned the different types of film stock, 16, 35, 8mm, and how it was shot on 
mostly a handheld 16mm film, much like the early films of uh, French New Wave director Jean-Luc Godard. I also, this was the first time I ever heard of the term an independent film, uh, where the film was made outside of Hollywood. There were other independent films before George Romero uh, made Night of the Living Dead, but none of them had such a great national impact. You could argue that John Cassavetes in the 50s did with his films, but he was already a part of the Hollywood system, so uh, his films being seen were not uh, an issue. George Romero was offered a deal through American International Pictures to distribute Night of the Living Dead. However, uh, they wanted to add a subplot uh, about a romance somewhere in it and have the military in the end show up and make it basically take care of the problem and wipe out the zombie menace. I apologize for whoever is texting me right now. Um, so he refused and went with a smaller distributor. And herein lies a big issue of Night of the Living Dead. Initially it was called Night of the Flesh Eaters. However, there was another film with the same title. So they then chose the title Night of the Living Dead. The new distributor uh, got new titles printed uh, for Night of the Living Dead. However, they forgot to include the copyright notice on the actual title of the film. The film pretty much immediately fell into public domain and was duplicated. It grossed over $100 million between 1968 and 1970, which is a monumental amount of money today. Close to half a billion, I would assume, if not more. Uh, and it definitely caused a wave of influence, definitely with Bob Clark and his film Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. Bob Clark and George Romero have something else in common, which is they both moved to Toronto to make films initially and then stayed and became Canadians. Bob Clark did it in the 70s, and he, in fact, inspired the entire slasher genre with his film Black Christmas in 1975. And George Romero did it uh, much later in the year 2000 when he was making the feature film Bruiser. He came back up here to shoot his film Land of the Dead and afterwards realized that if he became a Canadian citizen, he would qualify for Canadian tax breaks. So therefore, he became a Canadian. Uh, his other, his second film after that was a drama called There's Always Vanilla, which I have not seen. He also made the film Season of the Witch, The Crazies, and Martin before Dawn of the Dead. Season of the, Witch was, Season of the Witch was a very early feminist film, which focused on a character only known as Jack's wife and how she found independence through dabbling in witchcraft. The Crazies was almost a parody of Night of the Living Dead, and it focused on the army accidentally releasing a chemical agent which causes mass hysteria, panic, and violence in citizenry, and how the government can't control it, and things spiral out of control quickly, as they always tend to do in George's films. He then made the film Martin. Now, this is a very important film. It's the first time he worked with special effects technician Tom Savini, and it was kind of his comeback. It was a modernization of the vampire legend. It stars John Amplis as the title character Martin, who believes he is a centuries-old vampire, whereas in reality he's probably an, just a teenager. He doesn't have fangs. In fact, at one point in the film he actually wears plastic uh, uh, costume store fangs to frighten someone. He uh, can go out in daylight. He doesn't fly. He doesn't turn into a bat or turn into mist. He has to break into houses of people that he wants to... Uh, drink the blood of, and he can't seduce women to save his life. Um, so he's a very, very messed up character. And he's our main character, and it's very bizarre to have to sit through a movie with that kind of despicable person as your main character if it wasn't for the character of his cousin, 
who appears to be much, much older than him. His cousin is a very deeply religious nut, essentially, who also believes Martin is a vampire, and that it is his destiny to save Martin's soul and then destroy him. The film is sad and heartbreaking, and it was a turning point in George's career. He, it was his first time working with director Richard Rubenstein, who went on to produce most of his work throughout the late 70s and 1980s. And it put him back on the map. There's always Vanilla, uh, Season of the Witch, and the Crazies were barely distributed outside of the Pittsburgh area. None of them really made money, and George Romero um, honestly wasn't very proud of them. Martin, though, was. Martin was the film that essentially convinced them to continue making films. It also put him back on the radar of foreign uh, distributors. Uh, through that, Dario Argento, the great Italian horror director, saw it and was always a fan of Night of the Living Dead and approached George Romero with the idea of making a sequel. This became my favorite film of all time, Dawn of the Dead. George Romero brings back the dead. Night of the Living Dead has ended. Dawn of the Dead is here. We must not be lulled by the concept that these are our family members or our friends. They are not. They will not respond to such emotions. Operator dead. Post abandoned. You may never get out of the room. It's everywhere. What the hell is it? Looks like a shopping center. One of those big indoor malls. What are they doing? Why do they come here? Some kind of instinct, memory, what they used to do. This was an important place in their lives. We've got a war. I'm afraid. We have spawned our own savagery. Soon it will consume us all. It is a horrible, hauntingly accurate vision of the mindless excesses of a society gone mad. When there is no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. We are down to the line, folks. We are down to the line. Dawn of the Dead. This was a very, very, very early criti uh, critique of uh, consumer culture and how it was on the rise. George Romero himself even said, like, oh, Dawn of the Dead, you know, it's, it's a party. It's a gas. It's like the Bee Gees, you know. It was the late 70s, the time of disco music, Star Wars, and feeling good about yourself again. The baby boomers had won. They just had to take a bump between Charles Manson and Richard Nixon to get to the, the finish line. about how much I love Dawn of the Dead. However, I'm not going to. I'm just going to say watch it. Try to watch it to U.S. theatrical release. It's probably uh, the better cut. There's also the Italian cut known as Zombie, which is directly inspired Lucio Fulci's Zombie 2. And of course, we covered Zombie 3 way back in the early days of the podcast. But 
it's just a great movie. I can't, you know, say enough good things. I love the soundtrack by Goblin. I remember when I first saw it, it didn't impress me much. The zombie effects weren't that great. Um, they're essentially people painted a grayish blue, and they just slowly moved through the mall. But the day after I watched it, everywhere I looked, I just thought in the corner of my eye, oh my god, there's a zombie. It just, it just stuck with me and kept up with me, and it was the evolution from Night of the Living Dead, where it's the first night, things get crazy, but okay, order will be retained, to now it's six weeks later, and society is gradually collapsing. And then, oh my god, our four heroes, they get this entire shopping mall to themselves, everything they could ever want, but they are horrendously depressed. And everything feels empty, because they didn't earn anything. Everything's at their fingertips, yet they didn't earn it. They didn't even have to steal it, really. They just landed on the roof in their helicopter, went downstairs, blocked the exits, killed off the zombies, which were quite frankly proven easy to kill in this film. And it was theirs. After that, um, Dawn of the Dead was a huge international success, and he was able to do Night Riders. Uh, it's been a long time since I've seen Night Riders, and my memories of it are quite fuzzy. I'm going to be revisiting it soon, but um, uh, I'm going to let that that one slide through the cracks. After that, he did Creep Show, which was his first collaboration with Stephen King. Um, it was a ser an anthology film, probably one of the best anthology films. I put it right up there with the uh, the original Tales from the, of the Crypt from, 19, from the 1970s. And then he did Day of the Dead. Day of the Dead, when I first saw it, I didn't like it. The characters were harsh. The violence was crazy over the top and super disturbing. And even though the ending was a happy one, it was also super bleak because the last stand of the government of some sort of organized resistance to the overwhelming zombie apocalypse failed. As I grew older, I revisited the film again and again, and now it's it's almost in a tie with Dawn of the Dead. I love it to no end. It is a funny movie, which I didn't pick up on when I was younger. It's definitely uh, the height of 80s horror gore, uh, gore fests, I guess you could say. And it features another kick-ass soundtrack. Not by Goblin, unfortunately. But uh, I think John Harrison did the soundtrack. No relation to George, obviously. Um, but it's great. After that, uh, George did some TV with Tales from the Dark Side. And then he did the Tales from the Dark Side movie, another anthology film in the, in the vein of Creepshow. And then he did a bunch of other films, Monkey Shines, The Dark Half. Um, I'm trying to think if there was anything else there. And then he basically got burnt out in the Hollywood system. He got stuck in development hell on a lot of his projects, and he even said himself, I've been paid more to make films that never get made than on any of the films I ever got that were finished and released. He finally came back in the year 2000 with the film Bruiser, which had an interesting premise of a man who is essentially walked over his entire life, and then one day he wakes up without a face, just a plain blank mask, and he sets about getting revenge on all the people who have wronged him. It had some interesting ideas, but it didn't really land. What it did do is it got George to Toronto. And while he was here, he actually directed a video for the punk rock band, The Misfits. 
Now, I love the Misfits. I've been listening to them for, God, over half my life, about 17 years now. And I never would have heard of them if it wasn't for the fact that they wrote a song called Night of the Living Dead uh, back in 1977. And uh, they were actually interviewed on Much Music along with George Romero when he was directing their music video for the song Scream from their famous Monsters album that came out in 1999. Uh, The video is fun, cheesy, a little bit hokey, but pretty good. Another uh, project that George was working on at this time was the Resident Evil movie. If you've ever played the Resident Evil video games, or any survival horror game for that matter, they definitely take from his work. He was hired by Capcom to uh, direct the Japanese commercial for Resident Evil 2, which actually starred Brad Renfrew, of all people. Um, And it went over incredibly well. And then he was tasked with making a feature film out of it. So he wrote a draft of the script, and they instead went with Paul W.S. Anderson, which has gone on to make, I think, about five or six Resident Evil films, and they've they've done well financially, but they suck. Like, there's just nothing enjoyable about them, and they don't really have anything to do with the um, with the, the original game. They, it's almost like they're trying to avoid being a zombie, zombie movies. So then, after a few more years of developmental hell, George Romero finally got to make Land of the Dead. Now, after the rise of the zombie video game craze with Resident Evil, Resident Evil 2, Resident Evil 3, and a whole bunch of other knockoffs, House of the Dead, and whatnot, um, there was a resurgence in zombie culture in the early 2000s. Uh, It was first with uh, Danny Boyle's film 28 Days Later, which whole sequences were lifted from George Romero movies. I don't really lay any blame or want to point fingers or say that, you know, they ripped them off. But because it was done with such style and in such a different context from how they were originally presented, but George Romero's fingerprints were entirely all over that film. Then came in 2003-2004, can't recall right now off the top of my head, the remake of Dawn of the Dead directed by Zack Schneider, and which was written by uh, James Gunn. Um, however, his first draft was, was rewritten by another writer, which explains all the horrendous plot holes. When I first saw the remake, I liked it quite a bit. However, now, I don't. Running zombies don't do it for me. Um, and there's plot holes that you can drive a truck through in that movie. And at a certain point, I actually think they do have a truck driving through a plot hole. But then, that film did well financially, and that allowed him to do Land of the Dead, which brought him back to Toronto. Land of the Dead, when I first saw it, I liked it quite a bit. The second time I saw it, it kind of... It was alright with me. Um, it took a lot of crap when it first came out from reviewers, but now, much like Day of the Dead, as it's aged, it's gotten much, much better with time, especially in the rise of Donald Trump and the rise of the whole concept of the 1% versus the 99%, which George Romero, again, way ahead of the curve on his social commentary. Then after that, George Romero did two more zombie films, Diary of the Dead and Survival of the Dead. I'll be honest, I didn't enjoy Diary of the Dead at all. I felt it was... just not good. I, I think it was done too quickly after Land, I think. And George even admitted that he was, you know, tapping into what, at the time, didn't have a term, but what would become social media. He kept referring to it as the blogosphere, because blogs were big at the time, and it was before Twitter and Facebook had really taken off. And then he did Survival of the Dead, which to this day I haven't seen, but I will see it. Probably within the next week I'll, I'll, I'll rent a copy 
and, and watch it. And that brings us to now, basically. In the past few years, I've had the distinct privilege of being in the same room with George Romero on a couple occasions. One was when he actually introduced and took questions uh, for a film print of his film Martin at the uh, TIFF Lightbox in Toronto. Um, and it was great. He was thrilled that people were there to see his, what he considers his favorite film of his that he made. And he just seemed enjoyed that people still wanted to talk, see about this film, still had questions at what was rapidly approaching 40 years later. Um, I also sat in on a talk with him, not me talking with him, but I was there, when uh, he talked about Michael Powell's film Peeping Tom. And it was interesting, again, like he just had a love for this film and a love for the work of Michael Powell in general, The Red Shoes. He was He went on and on about and you could just see that this is a guy that loved films and had no intention of stopping. He was still working on developing new projects even up until he passed away. Now, I'm going to end my uh, overly long diatribe about my gushing love for George Romero by talking about the screening of Dawn of the Dead that I went to in Toronto at the TIFF Lightbox. Dawn of the Dead, again, my favorite movie. I've never seen it on the big screen. It's actually very hard to see on the big screen because there's very few prints of it left. And Richard Rubenstein uh, regained the rights to it a few years ago, and he's made it a very expensive proposition for theaters to show. In fact, I believe it was the New Beverly Theater in uh, Los Angeles, or maybe it was the Cine Family. One of the two theaters in Los Angeles, they showed it as part of their um, their all-night horror marathon a few years ago, and said that getting that print of Dawn of the Dead and getting the rights to show it cost more than every other film on the bill combined, and it was something like six films overnight. It's crazy. So they showed a, a digital cinema print, or DCP if you would, and it was bad. It started playing without sound. Uh, it froze a couple times before it could get going. Then they eventually started it like about two minutes into the movie, mid-sentence, uh, and it, that was super disappointing. Not as disappointing as the fact that there were a group of like late teens, early 20s kids there that had done shrooms beforehand and were very high, very loud, very obnoxious, just talk, talk, talking throughout the whole movie. So I was getting more and more disappointed and more and more distraught and I just couldn't enjoy the film and I even told them, you know, hey, shut up and they just didn't and none of the ushers there did anything about it. And then a scene happened. It's the scene where Flyboy, the character of Steven uh, in Dawn of the Dead is isolated from his friends. It's after the motorcycle gang has made a raid on the mall, zombies have taken over and things are quite quickly going to hell. Steven is trapped in an elevator trying to get up into the roof to go into a... Uh, uh, a, sh- a, a They discovered a series of uh, wind tunnels or, I guess, uh, heating ducts that they were crawling through to get through the mall, and one of them dropped them right at the, um, at the, the elevator. And as he's trying to get up there, the elevator starts going up and down. Zombies come in and quite brutally take several bites out of him. As this was happening, there was no score to this, no dialogue, just sound effects and screams of pain from the main character. All the shroomed up jerks in the audience fell silent. It was that impactful of a scene, 30 years later, even to those stoned out of their brains. And on that note, 
I'm going to uh, switch over now and play our little Nemesis uh, review. Other than that, I just want to say rest in peace, George Romero, and we'll see you on the other side. Okay, now we're recording. So, welcome to a very special bonus episode of Death by Video. I guess we're going to call it Death by Cinema because we actually went out to a cinema. Um, I'm Graham. I'm Phil. I'm Kit. Bonus? Is this a one-up? Lillian. Yeah, it's an extra one for, for this week because it's not part of our Canadian Canadiana month. Oh, right. um, so, we just got out of the uh, Royal Cinema on College Street in downtown Toronto, Ontario, Canada, where there was a rare 35mm screening of the Albert Pyun, uh, Pyung? Pyung? I believe it's, I think they call it, I think it's Pyung. Pyung. Uh, a film from 1992, Nemesis, which, uh, is kind of hard to describe. We're also walking the streets of Toronto right now as we record this. But, uh, Phil, how would you describe Nemesis? Um, a fuck ton of gun battles. That's true. Wrapped around about 10 minutes of plot. That's right. All right. So, uh, what did... Okay, how do we summarize... So, Albert Pyung... Pyung? 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 Pyung. We all got to get closer to. Uh, Albert Pyung. 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 Yeah. Hence that the Peter Kaplowski, the programmer of the night... He uh, joked that he was going to sing a very special adaptation of the song "This is What It Means to Be" or "Tonight is What It Means to Be Young" from the Streets of Fire soundtrack. As tonight, this tonight is what it means to be P Young. So, I guess that's how you pronounce his last name. Anyways, Nemesis from 1992. Um, Albert P Young was very prolific, as we found out from the trailers that were played for his movies before we watched it, including Vicious Lips, uh, Brain Smasher. What were some of the other Brain titles? Brain Smasher, a love story. It was called. Right, it was the Terry Hatcher... Alien uh, from L.A., XOXO or something, right? Yeah, yeah, Ali- Alien from L.A. starring Kathy Ireland. Like, I Brain, think it was like... Yeah, Brain Smasher Love Story. It's a romantic comedy action movie with Andrew Dice Clay and Terry Hatcher. Yep, Andrew Dice... Yeah. Also, Ticker. Oh, my God, Oh, Ticker. ticker. <laughs> Everybody chuckled at the title. <laughs> it was a funny title. What was that one even about? That was that was that one of the ones with Ice T? It had Ice T in it. Uh, Dennis Hopper is a mad bomber. Oh, that's the one. The goatee, Dennis Hopper. Yeah. yeah. And Tom Sizemore is in it as a uh, rusty bad cop. And then the big reveal is that Steven Seagal's in it too. The crowd went yeah. wild. Yeah, and uh, they revealed to us though, that Steven Skull was only on set for like two days. Albert Pyung, he's like one of those low-budget masters, so he could like really stretch out an actor what in a movie. What about that Ice-T and Burt Reynolds movie that he did as yeah, well? Double Bill. Oh yeah, with Charlie Sheen. Was Charlie Sheen in that Charlie one? Sheen no, that was Rob Lowe. That was Rob Lowe, or Charles like Sheen. The Crazy story. Six. Crazy Six, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, set in Russia just after and the Russian... an Ice-T and Christoph Lambert movie called Mean Guns. Oh. So yeah, so at least they got They're starting to get Christoph Lambert's name right uh, They pronounced it as Christopher Lambert Not Christopher Lambert this time 
so that's good. Um, and so let's they're, talk. They're, they're going for median, I guess. Uh, yeah, happy, happy in the middle. A, it was a soft Kristoff too. Yeah. Yeah, I think, Christopher. Yeah, I think it was like a full-on Christopher. Uh, was it? Yeah. Christopher Lambert. Okay. Yeah. Um, so anyways, let's talk about the movie we actually watched called Nemesis. Now, it kind of combined elements of Blade Runner with elements of uh, the Terminator. Robocop. Oh, yeah, Robocop was in there for sure. Total Recall. Total Recall, right. Um, basically, every good movie from that era to create one really good movie that we watched tonight. You gonna be you gonna be a contrarian already, Kit? Well, I, it's hard to call this a really good movie. I mean, a really good movie in the pantheon of like early '90s action sci-fi movies. Yeah, I liked it. I, I think to be a really good movie, the the movie would have to be coherent, and this movie is not. Oh, it's super coherent. Basically, there are cyborgs living amongst humans, and they replace people with... Shut up, Kit. They replace people... Like, people can get parts of them replaced. And so, in this case, now the cyborgs are mounting a revolt over uh, over humanity. Um, and so, our main hero, uh, Alex Rain, played by Olivier Gunther... No, Gunier. Grunier. Grunier, uh, Olivier Grunier. And he earns every single syllable of that French name with his lack of uh, command of the English language. Um, he is our... I thought he did all right. He said fuck pretty well, too. Yeah. yeah. Everyone kind of said the yeah, F word pretty yeah, well. It's, it's basically like a reverse Terminator 2. It's the cyborgs versus the humans. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, the movie starts with him taking a uh, an illegal cyborg to a hotel for a tryst, and she finds that he has no guns, but then he finds the gun on her, blows her away, and then... Her dudes come that, like, she's part of, like, a terrorist outfit of some sort? Yeah. Where does it go from there, Kit? Uh, lots, lots of gunfire. Most of the movie is just gunfire. Yeah, I I didn't understand the difference between the terrorists and the cyborgs. I thought they were the same at first. No, so the terrorists are, I think some of them are cyborgs, and I think the rest of them, they're called terrorists because they're trying to over... They were initially tagged as terrorists by the police forces trying to shut them down, which is secretly run by cyborgs. Stop laughing, kid, as I'm trying to explain this plot. It makes total they sense. They were cyborgs, too. They were, like, some of them were, like, had, like, I guess, were cyborgs working for them? Because even the, um, the main one... Uh, what was her name again? Uh, the main... Jared. Jared, yeah, that was the female uh, lead in a way but not really um she was a cyborg who was working to ensure that humanity could survive so i mean yeah there were cyborgs working on both sides it, the the lines were there was lots of gray in this universe not it wasn't black and white it was a lot of gray i think we all, all agree right guys right yeah. sure that's what made it blade runnery exactly um although i don't think he shot a woman in the back in this movie but that would have been great if he did so a lot of women get shot and killed in this movie whether they're mainly cyborg women but nevertheless yeah well i think uh in the intro the two programmers actually discussed that they had written almost in all the roles with the idea that they could either be male or female because it was kind of going on a ghost in a shell like gender is fluid like people are body hopping so it, it doesn't really matter so like even alex rain was written as a general neutral name um 
but the one thing we did see one one very frail female uh, old lady totally wreck a police officer in one of the greatest moments where it was she was this little old lady and the guy's like oh right I guess you got like he's like giving her all kinds of crap she's just like punching him like get off me yeah and then uh, she just takes out a gun and shoots him in the back and then continues to empty the clip into him until he is dead 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 and she says god darn freaking cyborgs uh, and walks away it was very warranted because he had her by the throat practically, oh, yeah, didn't totally, he? Yeah, she's like, "Let me go." She also uses saltier language than Graham has chosen to use. Hey, man, I got to keep this podcast PG. I didn't realize that's actually a thing we I got to worry about. So there will be bleeps of plenty from now on, or not? I don't know. Um, but yeah, so and then he winds up. So he goes. There's a lot of hopping around and a lot of different hairstyles for our hero in this movie. He goes to Baja, New America, where he kills... Um, oh, the action scenes in this are unreal. Just explosions, gunfights, shit blowing up left, right, and center. Sorry, stuff blowing up left, right, and center. And um, just a whole lot of good old practical special effects that you know we haven't seen in a long time. The opening shootout where like he chases... like They go through this... I guess it's, a, it's the future of Los Angeles, which looks very much like a oil refinery that's been partially shut down which I'm guessing where most of the movie was shot, when it wasn't shot in Hawaii. Um, it turns out that the Baja... Was it Baja? No. not Yeah, Baja scenes were shot in Tucson, Arizona, in a former western town, which kind of makes sense when you see it. So, uh, our hero is essentially captured by the Los Angeles Police Department, outfitted with a bomb in his heart, so it's kind of like Escape from New York, where it's like, if you don't do this in three days, you will, you will die. Turns out that the bomb is actually meant to be detonated when he's in, within proximity of Jared to blow them, them, both of them up and end the rebellion against these cyborg overlords. So, guys, who wants to take it from there? But, um, <clears throat> Julian, Jared's partner... Right. Uh, ...zaps him with this thing that prolongs the process of... We're, we're, we're forgetting about Tom Jane. Oh, yeah, a young Thomas Jane makes an appearance in this film playing uh, the unnamed lover. No, Billy, 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 Billy Bang. Billy Moon. I think it was a, uh, was it Billy Moon or was it Billy Bang? Because we saw his butt. Yeah, we, we saw his butt. We get a lot of Tom Jane's butt. Yes. Sorry, can you say that again, Kit? We got a lot of Tom Jane's butt. Yeah, and we were actually informed by a good friend of mine, Alex McLeod, uh, Afterwards, he has seen the, the DVD version, which is the unmatted version. So we saw the proper aspect ratio matted down to Cinemascope. And the version he saw was an unmatted DVD version where you can see potted plants next to the... Tr- you can see dolly track, you can see boom, uh, microphone booms. And you can see Thomas Jane's um, member, which is covered up by a little sock. Or I'm, I shouldn't say little sock, by a sock. I just... I don't know. A big sock. Sure. Um, so after they go to, uh, he goes to, where is it, uh, Hong Lu, which is clearly Hawaii, where he again meets up with a bunch of other people, and then more shootouts happen, and eventually he meets up with Maxine Pat, Maxi Pat, Pat, I think it's a, 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 a reference to Maxi Pad, but yeah. I could be wrong. Yeah, I think that's what I heard too, Maxi Pad. Yeah, it made me do a double take with my ears. Um, and then... I thought it was kind of endearing. It was. She was an interesting character. She was, at first, you're like, I don't know who this character is. She's following him around. And then she saves him at one point. And she's kind of like a, an artful Dodger character in a way. Because at first, you're thinking, like, maybe she's being set up as the new love interest. But no. Uh, 
But no, she hates his guts because he killed her sister, Julian. That is true. Uh, no, he... Uh, no, the woman in... Oh, the other woman was his sister. Uh, I forget her name. The one from the first scene that said, like, you don't know what it means to be human anymore, blah, blah, blah. And then so he tracked her down to... To... Um, to Baja and blew her brains out. And then for some reason, someone killed his dog, which was unpleasant. It was a little puppy that he found. Yes. In the midst of him being nearly blown away. and Yes, he saves, he saves a puppy by putting it into a little safe before the bomb hits. Um, and then when you see him and he's in Baja, he's still got the dog with him and it's grown. And you're like, oh, he took that dog in. And then um, after he kills um, people... The terrorists. Yeah, I think they did a um, a shoot to like nine years later or something, or six years later, and you see the dog like full grown. And it was six months walking. later, yeah. Six yeah. months, yeah. Six months. Yeah. Fast growing. Go grow fast, those huskies. Yeah. Anyway, he he leaves the dog to die. He no longer cares about the dog. I wouldn't say he left the dog to die. He just didn't expect them to kill him right away because we then see him burying the dog, or at least that's what I interpreted when he was digging that grave. Maybe it was for the people he just murdered, but I don't know. Anyways, uh, in Hang Lu, um, he gets the information, kills all the bad guys, and it, the plot's not really what's important about this movie. The plot is incoherent. But... There technically is a plot, but I don't understand it at all, and that's why I've been silent all this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but it was just the movie itself, just the absolute balls-to-the-wall action, 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 which was amazing. The action is also pretty incoherent. But amazing. <laughs> so stop being such a jerk, Kit. Um, but so, yeah, so what did we all think? We're going to wrap this up, uh, keep this episode brief. What did we all think of Albert Pyong's Young's nemesis or nemeses. I was entertained in spite of its incoherence. It's it's probably one of the silliest movies I think we've ever watched, and probably maybe one of the silliest movies I've ever watched. But I did I was entertained. It it was fun to watch because it made no sense. When I edit this, I'm gonna like take other like times that you said the word good and just edit it over silly. <laughs> And Lillian, what did you think of Albert Pyung's Nemesis? Well, my jaw dropped a little when Kit said it was a, probably the silliest movie we've ever seen because I I don't silly. think so. I I rather enjoyed it. I like. You can you can enjoy silly things. Oh, I don't mean it like that. I I I, I was moved by yeah, it. Yeah, you legitimately liked it. You saw that there was some character work going on. Yeah. Like what character work? Oh, come on. Do you remember Jared? She was amazing. There was no character there. Yeah, there was. No, there wasn't. Yeah, there was. It was all contrivance. She, her, her emotions depended on what the scene demanded. Maybe the scene was affected by what her emotions commanded. No. <laughs> you guys are jerks. Sorry, I just stepped on your foot, Lil. Okay. You okay? All right. Um... But yeah, no, yeah, I remember like you leaned over Lillian about like two minutes in and you're like, I love this movie already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... I, I can see why. No, I'm not, I'm not trying to trash the film, but it is incredibly silly. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> we'll just say that. I also love how uh, the cyborgs have French accents in the movie. Not just Olivier Gruner. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it was all the cyborgs had. Oh, yeah, that's right. They all had an accent, yeah. Yeah. 
But, you know, that's what you do in the movie. Although, no, the cops didn't. The uh, Farnhan, Farnhan, oh, yeah. what was yeah, his name again? The the main bad guy that was uh, Farnahan? It was, it was vaguely German-sounding, actually. Yeah, they all put on some sort of voice. Like, the other guy, too, that was in Blade Runner. Yeah, yeah. He had a little thing going, too. Yeah, he went German. Yes, I am very looking much forward to your work. Yeah, and what was that thing he said? We all chuckled, uh, and then the cheat scene. Yeah. Very good, or I like to see you work, or something. I think it was, I love the things you do, or something, yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah. And then, and then Alex swung in on a rope and stole the card that they had just stolen from him. This film also kind of had some interestingness, like the mem- the size of the memory cards that they used in the film, even though it was 1992, looks not that far off from like a SDHC card or an SDXC card that we use nowadays. Um, or like the old SIM cards from, uh, from old phones. Um, so yeah, I really enjoyed the film. I would highly recommend seeing it. It is a fun two hours, or maybe just under two hours. And yeah, it's a blast. And I'm saying that figuratively and literally as there's so many explosions in the film. Um, final thoughts, guys, all around. Phil? Um, and, and also kind of anticipated Johnny Mnemonic, which I thought was kind of amusing with the whole information courier thing. Uh, well, that's the thing. Albert Pyung, actually, like, a lot of his films had that whole cyberpunk aesthetic. Even, I mean, I guess his most well-known film is Cyborg, the Van Damme effort. Yep. He also directed the 1990 Captain America film, which wasn't that good, but I enjoyed it quite a bit when I was a child. Yeah, I believe on Wikipedia there was a quote how, like, Albert Pyung sort of had carved a niche of us uh, having cyborg, having kung fu fighting cyborg movies. I would agree. Kit, what are your final thoughts on Albert Pyong's nemesis? I, I would watch more Albert Pyong stuff, but just because I, I kind of enjoy the incoherence in a way. It's just so ridiculous. I think it very much was an early 90s action film, which we all grew up watching tons of. And I think we missed that whole big just like, let's just blow shit up. Like, let's figure out a way to blow as much stuff up as possible, make it look awesome. Wouldn't that be Transformers 5 or whatever the fuck it is now? The difference, though, is that all those that stuff blowing up is in a computer, whereas back then it took skill and effort, and people actually cared. They didn't have they didn't have the contrivance of here's a big giant robot walking through a city, so everything they touch is going to explode. Important difference, I see. Very important. And I guess you have plenty of room in Hawaii to blow shit up. Yeah, that is true. Um, and Lil, what are your final thoughts on the movie? Yeah, I said earlier I was, like, moved and stuff. I wasn't, like, Blade Runner moved, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but still... I, um, I appreciated what was going on, I guess, uh, in a way that, I don't know, I didn't, I didn't take it as silly. But um, I could see how it could be seen as silly. But, yeah, I think all around we, we enjoyed it, so that's good. <laughs> oh, the one thing I wanted to add was, so uh, one of my favorite 80s characters, teen character actors Tom Matthews showed up who's in a bunch of other Albert Pyong movies as well um, but he's most well known as being in Return of the Living Dead oh shit is it starting to rain it is Return of the Living oh, I'm talking into the, the, the speaker the, the receiver Return of the Living Dead and um, and Dangerously Close and uh, Friday the 13th Part 6 he was in it and he was the character whose face would open up and have a gun inside of it and he would shoot the guy with his face which and he died going down a water slide with our main character. They rode a water slide down together. Yeah, I think that got the biggest applause uh, next the to the water old slide. lady. Uh, yeah, yeah because he was all like, "Heads up!" and then his head got hurt. And it wasn't water they were sliding on; it was mud. 
Yep, definitely. And Lillian also pointed out this awesome moment where two girls with sunglasses cornered our hero at the very start of the film with guns and just blew the shit out of him, and it was great. That's, that's that's just before he got almost blown away and that dog came along and saved him. And uh, I liked it a lot. I really don't have a whole lot to 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 add. I think we all the all three of you guys kind of tied up why this movie is great um, and uh, or at least why I think it's great. And I think you the most important thing about movies is that you enjoy them or that you get something from them and this was very enjoyable. It was a worthwhile effort to get out to the theater to see it. I would recommend it. Yeah. I think we would all recommend seeing it because it was just so fun. Right, guys? Yeah. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> you just can't give me that one-inch kit, can you? Um, but, yeah. So, with that being said, I've been Graham. I've been Phil. I've been Kit. And I've been Lillian. And this has been your bonus episode of Death by Cinema. Lucky we'll, you. We'll see you soon. Bye. Welcome to a night of total terror. (laughs) Night of the living dead, the dead who live on living flesh, the dead whose haunted souls hunt the living The living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. Night of the living dead. A bizarre adventure in fear. An experience in shock, more shattering than your strangest nightmare. Night of the living dead. A night with the dead who cannot die. A night of total terror. Night of the Living Dead.